Hi, I am Dan Delamarski, co-host of the Work Item Podcast. Today, we talk to someone who has followed a non-traditional career path into one of the most complex fields, artificial intelligence and machine learning. We sit down with lead product manager at DeepMind, Paige Bailey, to learn about her story, ethical AI, and the importance of reducing complexity instead of adding it. Enjoy the show. So we are at episode 22. Uh, we're kicking off the February, uh, which is a rectangular month this year. <laughs> I did not know this. I, somebody tweeted about this totally random meme of like, day is, kicks off the month that looks like a perfect rectangle in the calendar. And it looks like <laughs> four weeks of February that look exactly like a rectangle. So Short, it's a, Shortest month of the year too, right, Dan? I think, yes, exactly. I, think I saw that. Yes. And uh, so on this special month, we have a special guest, uh, and that is Paige Bailey. Welcome, Paige, to our show. Excellent. I am very glad to be here and uh, very excited to talk a little bit about machine learning and about uh, and about all of the great stuff that um, that you guys have been doing and and that uh, that we've been thinking about at Google and at DeepMind. I like that this conversation is so comfortable that you jump straight into, you know, I'm excited to talk about these things and <laughs> we have this list of questions. Hold on. But okay. So Paige, for folks that don't know uh, what you're doing, and I'm sure a lot of them follow you on Twitter and they probably know and you're going to be repeating these things, but tell us more about what you do. Absolutely. So I am a newly minted or a relatively newly minted product manager for DeepMind's research platform team. Um, DeepMind, uh, you can think of it as um, kind of another business unit uh, within Alphabet. Um, Alphabet is the parent company of Google and of Waymo, which is a self-driving car company, um, and of several other um, several other efforts that you might have heard of. Um, but uh, DeepMind, Google Brain, um, they're both research organizations uh, within Alphabet. So as a product manager for the research platform team, I help support the great work of all of the research scientists and engineers who are doing things like building AlphaFold, um, which helps with drug discovery and um, can also do things like uh, suggest vaccines. Um, and AlphaGo, which was uh, the model that was able to beat, uh, beat a human player at Go, um, uh, AlphaStar and all of the other uh, really nice reinforcement learning projects. Um, and prior to that, I was at Google Brain um, managing all of Google's machine learning frameworks. Um, so that is TensorFlow, Jax, um, and also uh, also Keras. Um, and before that, I, I was working with Den at Microsoft uh, and really uh, loved my time there as an Azure Cloud Advocate. Um, focused on machine learning and AI, and then also as a senior software engineer in the office of the Azure CTO. So that's a lot of stuff. And I'm, gonna, I'm just <laughs> going to tell you up front that like AI is definitely not my strength. And so help me as a n you know new person to the field understand how pervasive AI is in the world we're in today. I think understanding that helps people like realize that it's deeper than you would think in our daily lives. And it's impacting more things than, um, you would expect. Um, I know just my cursory knowledge of it is that it really is kind of everywhere. It's behind almost any product that we're using today. Right. Awesome. Like that's a, that's an excellent question. And, and I agree wholeheartedly like AI is, um, you know, something that Google cares a great deal about. We consider ourselves to be an AI first company. Um, and pretty much any Google service that you use has a TensorFlow model embedded within it. So um, an example of this would be um, if you have a Pixel phone or an Android device and you use uh, kind of the speech to text functionality, um, you know, congratulations, uh, you're using a TensorFlow model. Or if you... Uh, if you've typed an email into G or started typing an email into Gmail and it's done autocomplete um, for, for a few additional words, 
um, you know, congratulations, that's, uh, that's deep learning. Um, and it's We're this, doing your Google search, right? Like everybody's using Google or yeah. everybody has used Google and yeah. knows that it recommends things as you're typing. Exactly. And, and so, so that is uh, a particular um, library called TF ranking, um, which uses TensorFlow to, uh, to kind of give um, uh, uh, you know, the, the likely, um, the likely best candidate um, for uh, for what you're uh, what you might be searching for based on a large history uh, of of previously searched for products and and so it's not just Google though so like if you go on Amazon um, Amazon.com and you're searching for products and it, it sort of suggests products that you might also be interested in um, that's also a ranking algorithm same for Netflix. Um, you know, like the, the nifty, you know, teams backgrounds and zoom backgrounds where, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the person is still in the camera, but you know, it looks like you're on a beach, um, or, uh, or climbing a mountain. That's, uh, something called image segmentation. Um, and, uh, that is also congratulations, deep learning embedded, uh, embedded within a browser, um, to be able to fill facilitate some of this work. Um, so it's, it's been really magical for me to see in particular um, how all of these uh, all of these products that I've helped uh, sort of create have been deployed throughout the world and the creativity of users uh, as they're coming up with these uh, these novel use cases and these um, these ways to help people you know everything from drug discovery to um, detecting diabetic retinopathy, um, and, uh, and x-rays to, you know, like suggesting what I should watch for my next Netflix binge. Like it's really, it's really, really nifty. So in, in tech in the, t being in the tech world, you know, I'm a designer, but I don't work, um, really closely with like, well, the closest I get usually is search algorithms. So like I'm working with search interfaces and learning how like they're tuning AI models for that. Mm -hmm. Um, or we're like monitoring analytics and that type of thing, but I really get to see like AI applied outside of, you know, hard or not, you know, just kind of like dry technical situations. And you mentioned like, um, medical discoveries. Um, what are some of your, I guess one of you, some of your favorites or like, um, heartwarming applications of AI that you've seen in the world or, and it might not be Google. It might be anybody using it or Google technology or Microsoft technology, but yeah, like, What's going on out there that's just amazing with AI that you can tell us about? Yeah, like that's that's another really wonderful question, and and I I agree wholeheartedly. Like the the magical parts of AI are, are seeing it really really help people and improve their lives. Um, uh, like the you know the Terminator the Terminator use case is uh, you know certainly very far away. Um, and, and, uh, but, uh, if, if at all, but the, but my, some of my favorite examples, um, Microsoft has something called seeing AI, um, which helps, uh, which can help people who are without sight, um, uh, you know, do things like program, um, or, or be able to navigate the world, uh, through um, through like the descriptions of uh, the of what a video camera on a phone might see, right? So it's using deep learning to be able to um, to understand like you know this is the sidewalk, these are some trees. It looks like there are two people approaching, um, uh, like helping helping empower people um, who are differently abled. I think that's one of uh, the most uh, the most meaningful ways that deep learning can impact uh, impact everyone. Um, I've I've also been really um, sort of enchanted to see the way that deep learning is used for energy optimization. So being able to optimize the the power consumption in data centers. Um, DeepMind had a um, had a collaboration with Google's data centers to. Um, sort of reduce the carbon footprint of of how much uh, the the compute uh, is um, is using within our within our data center sources. I think Microsoft also had a, a similar project, um, but that is uh, you know as a former geophysicist um, that that means uh, that means a lot to me as well. And then also um, deep learning has been used to detect exoplanets. 
um, to be able to um, to to sort of understand space um, and and to uh, to you know bring new life into some of the satellite imagery that that had you know been initially analyzed by humans or maybe by um, you know sort of less powerful techniques. Um, but now the data can be reused and and sort of spot all of these things that we had missed before. Um, so so I really love the idea of machine learning not being like a like a people replacer, um, but more like a, a way to um, sort of enable and empower and improve the lives of humans and and be like a, a helpful assistant um, to help answer questions. Yeah, and I think that, a lot of people look at AI or like um, automation as like an enemy when in fact it's like an augmentation of like processes we don't really want to be doing anyways. And like, can we open that up to, can we open up our talents to, you know, more artistic endeavors or like exactly <laughs> just spend more time, you know, with other humans. Like we don't have to do this stuff that can be done by a computer. But I think that like I mentioned, a lot of people look at it as like making you obsolete when in fact it just creates more opportunity for us and it propels us forward into things we don't even know about yet. Absolutely. Den, go ahead, man. <laughs> no, I actually have a good question that can dovetail something that Paige already mentioned and that is related to your career. So you mentioned that you've been a geophysicist and I kind of want to zero in. You're doing a lot of work with AI today. But yes. what started it all? Where did it come from like the passion for AI, the passion for communities, because you have a pretty remarkable career. You started in um, a GIS, you worked with data science, you worked in advocacy, and now you're essentially product managing for AI. Yeah. How did it all start? Tell us more about your journey. Yeah, so so I, uh, I do absolutely have a very wonky career path and I am so, I am so grateful um, for the for the opportunities that I've had to to grow and to to kind of uh, gradually move into this machine learning space, um, and and it makes sense. Uh, it makes sense in some respects when you just remember that machine learning and deep learning are just like fancy math. Like it's it's just uh, you know like um, I've I've always really loved. Um, linear algebra and and differential equations and all of the rest of the things that were all taught in school, um, and the my my path um, in undergrad I did geophysics and applied math, um, and my um, my thought process was I'm going to be Lady Carl Sagan like I am going to uh, I am going to be able to be a science communicator for planetary science purposes. Um, which were, uh, I was able to get like uh, two really wonderful research internships um, at the Laboratory for Atmospheric and Space Physics in Boulder and at Southwest Research Institute in San Antonio. Um, our teams were uh, like um, understanding lunar ultraviolet um, would, and uh, sort of the presence of water ice in these permanently shaded regions on lunar surfaces. Um, so if you remember, there was like this project where they had a rocket and they like launched it and it crashed into the moon and then they monitored the ejecta. Um, and that was uh, that was one of the things that I got to be involved with. So building GIS uh, lunar ultraviolet maps um, and and sort of uh, spotting statistical anomalies and and these massive sources of data. Um, and so now, like, if you describe this to anyone, they're like, oh, yes, data science, machine learning. And back then it was just like, oh, yes, research. Um, and so uh, kind of by virtue of, of doing this data analysis work and, and working with GIS and, um, you know, starting to do Python programming, both as part of my applied math courses and through these GIS courses, um, I got a job opportunity at Chevron. Um, uh, to uh, build um, build some databases for them, but also to create geostatistics plugins for some of their earth sciences applications, which again, we're doing a, a sort of more traditional machine learning. Um, this was back in 2013, um, but, uh, but, still, um, but still definitely machine learning, though nobody really called it that, or data science, because those, those terms just didn't exist yet. Um, and so once, uh, you know, Harvard Business Review came out with a couple of articles that were like, data science is the thing to do. Um, they were like, hey, that's what Paige is doing. Let's just call her that now. 
Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, that's, uh, that's kind of history. And I was also very fortunate in that all of this was happening in Texas. Um, so I, I founded Pi Ladies in Houston, um, which is an open source Python user group for women and, uh, you know, for, for pretty much anybody that wants to come though. Um, and also many of the data science companies like Anaconda and Enthought Canopy, um, are based in Austin and we're, we're leading these really vibrant communities. Um, so I got to get involved with open source when I worked at Chevron and that, uh, that I think, um, really spoke to some of the people at Microsoft that were building out the cloud advocacy program. Um, and, and, you know, like I, I am just so delighted that, uh, that I was able to, um, to work in the cloud space, um, specifically on data science and machine learning. Um, and then that, you know, kind of naturally transitioned to open source machine learning frameworks at Google. Um, so. Some of that sounds like you were in the right area at the right time to yes. like kind of like absolutely continue to give you a slow trickle of like interest and like keep you on your toes. Right. And like learning. I am as a kid, as a kid, did, did you ever see yourself working with this? Like. Oh my God. You know, no, you know, I am so lucky. I am so, I am so lucky. Like I, um, I grew up, I, I am actually dialing in today from Waco, Texas, the bustling metropolis of Waco, Texas, uh, which is, uh, which is actually, actually, um, much larger than it was when I was a kid. I grew up in a, a small town, um, kind of a 30, 40 minute drive away from Waco, um, called Itasca, um, Atasca, Texas, and it has 1,300 people and just as many cows. And the uh, and my first experience with a computer um, was an Apple II that my mother salvaged from being thrown away from our local school library um, because the town does not have uh, does not have a regular um, a regular library. Uh, and um, an electrician friend helped us get it working. Um, I started programming with BASIC when I was like eight or nine years old, um, but the Apple II was pretty much my only toy. Uh, so, so I learned how to use it. Um, and I had never really imagined like computer science or programming as a career choice um, because it was fun. And like, who pays you to do the fun things? Um, so It's amazing how just having like a, having a device or having access to something can totally change your life. I know that, yep. um, I grew up in a town very similar, basically replaced the cows with corn <laughs> and you have my, you know, beginnings. And I had a, um, a friend whose mom was a professor and, um, she exposed me to a lot of, of literature and things like that. And they happened to have a computer that had internet yep. and her husband was a designer and he worked from home. So like some of that, like it definitely influences you, right? Like, yep. and so for your experience, having that device, you know, that one guy that was able to repair it, what yeah. a, what a life changer that is, right? Exactly. It's kind of cool to see how that has played out for you. Yeah, and it's uh, and for you as well, right? Like there's there's there, there's something magic, I think, about having um, there's something magic about learning something when you're a child and like being captivated by it. Um, and it's, it's something that, that you really never forget. Like I, I, there's, there's a reason why I can still recite like all of the Pokemon, um, and like have problems talking about all of the, the molecular structures of, of, uh, in biochem, right? Like it's, um, but it's, you know, it, it's, I'm so fortunate. And like, how, so is that, how is that information relevant right now? Why are you <laughs> in my brain still? Like, <laughs> exactly. So I actually am curious now that we're talking about the various kinds of uh, learning and, you know, you've been fortunate as a, as a child to have kind of the, the means to do that. I'm curious in terms of kind of the learning routine, what is that like for you? Like, because, you know, when we're uh, in our early age, I want to say, we have a lot of time on our hands where we can just sit down and like tinker with computers. When adult life kicks in, that time just kind of vanishes because, you know, the day-to-day -day stuff comes in. You have to do a lot of these responsibilities, pay bills, whatnot. And for you personally, I know that you, I follow your Twitter and I'm constantly fascinated by the things that you post in terms of new research papers. And how do you structure your learning? 
right? Now that you're working professionally, I think that's a question that is interesting to not only folks early in the career, but anyone in their career, because you have to create time to research the space, to better understand it. How do you go about solving that problem? Yeah. So, and and I, w- I will say the same thing to you as well, Dan. Like I am, I am shocked uh, and intimidated by the amount of content that you're able to produce about the stuff that you're learning. Like it is, it is great to see, but it's also like, wow. Like I and and it's and to be honest, it's often a reminder, like, oh, I should go read that paper. <laughs> but it's the um, I found that as I've uh, as I've matured in my career, it really helps um, to, to be mindful and to be choiceful about how to set aside time. Um, so like making sure that if, uh, if I do need to answer emails, and I know that I need to answer emails each day, I'm going to set aside, you know, 40 minutes in the morning, 40 minutes in the afternoon, um, and I will be hyper-focused on solving those tasks during that time. And then uh, like hyper-focused on whatever chunks of other time um, I have later in the day, whether it's meetings or whether it's like, uh, okay, I'm going to go through, um, there's this great, and I'm typing it into the to the chat so folks can read it later. Um, there's this great website called Archive Sanity, uh, which was created by this guy named Andre Carpathy. Um, but it takes all of the machine learning and data science papers from archive and aggregates them into one single location. Um, so I don't have to do like the mental guesswork of attempting to find out which are the most compelling papers for me to read today. Um, the, the other things that I, that I really love um, are, are kind of modular courses. Like um, I, I used to, to be really into data camp. Um, but also Coursera and its kind of approach towards um, five minute videos, 10 minute uh, reading snippets, you know, things that are really bite sized that you don't have to, um, that you don't have to, uh, you know, devote hours and hours of a day that you can just pick up as you're walking to your next location. And also like Kindle has just been like some sort of crazy drug to me. Um, I I, I got a Kindle and realized that you can rent books from libraries for free. Like, and and I feel like nobody told me this maybe earlier in my life because they realized how hard it would be for me to like not do that all the time. But like having having the ability to pull down any ebook from anywhere, from any library, and then just like read it uh, and like document it and ha- highlight it however I want without having, you know, like a, its physical presence as a reminder in my house that have how I like abuse my books. Like this is, this is just amazing. Not right? only do you have the internet, now you have access to an endless library, right? It's crazy. <laughs> it is absolutely absurd. And, and so, uh, like, and, and again, like touching back on y'all's points, um, from earlier in the day, right? Like, as an eight-year-old, nine-year-old kid, I could have never imagined this. Like Project Gutenberg, whenever I first saw it back, uh, you know, like I, I forget what particular year, but I remember I was very young and all I could think of was just like, oh my God, there's a text file of little women on the internet. Like I am going to, like, I'm going to be reading all day, like these these older books. Um, so so it's, it's just, uh, it is, you know, there's, and the other thing is always to be mindful that there's always going to be more to read, that you're never going to be able to read all of it, that you're never going to be able to um, to sort of consume all of the content in the world. Um, but like what you do consume, be mindful about it, um, be choiceful, use aggregators when you can, and then also never forget to be hands-on. Like um, as a product person in particular, especially a product person for a machine learning API, like you need to be programming all the time or as much as you can um, in order to understand the friction and the frustrations of your users. Um, And I just want to say like a massive shout out to whoever manages Archive because I think it's Cornell, right? It's Cornell University. That I use that as a, you know, hobby weekend reading where I, you know, go in on a weekend and say, Twitter sentiment analysis. And then you get all mm-hmm. these papers that just pop up with somebody who has already mm-hmm. done the work for you. And yep. it's just a matter of implementing. It's a wonderful, wonderful resource. Yep, 
I agree. And if you haven't had a chance, um, Kaggle has also uh, Kaggle also has a number of its kernels and notebooks available um, from you know people all over the world doing excellent work. Um, submitting their um, submitting their models for public competitions, and then all of those notebooks are available as resources, um, fully documented for people to review afterwards. Um, so if you ever have uh, and, and you know that Stack Overflow, um, GitHub, holy moly, GitHub, uh, like all of these you know content sources where if you want to understand how to use pandas to do a thing or use scikit-learn to do a thing, somebody's probably already done it, so you can just go out and find it. Um, like it's it's wonderful. I feel like at some point we need to do a reunion episode with our good friend Meg Reisdell, who we had a couple episodes back. She's a PM on Kaggle, <laughs> and we can just all nerd out on <laughs> reusable kernels. Well, yeah, the three of you. I'll, I'll just sit that one out because <laughs> that would be over my head. But yeah, awesome. You know, it, it seems like AI. You just just like any other specialty, you're going to have to have the ten, put in the ten thousand hours to become a master. Like, um, really dedicate yourself to wanting to be learn wanting wanting to learn and wanting to be curious um how important was it that you have like a background in ai to be successful in the field how often have you bumped into people that have went like a non-traditional route and you're working with them or you know what would you have to say about that like traditional versus non-traditional education lay it out there for us Awesome. So I am a huge believer in uh, like put your energy and your confidence in people, not in acronyms. Um, like I, I don't, uh, I don't think that academic background has any sort of indication on how curious or creative or talented any person is. Um, and the and you know having a, a computer science PhD does not mean that uh, that you are any better at asking questions or um, you know being empirical um, than any other human in the world. Um, and and actually, uh, computer science degrees um, are are often or or at least I've found um, less uh, less influential. Um, than uh, than coming from more of a, a science or even um, even like a, a sort of a cognitive science or a, an English background, um, to be honest. And you know the magic often happens in the margins. It's people who are coming with this domain knowledge and have you know deep insights into whatever their specialists at, um, and then are just using Python or machine learning techniques as a tool to help better understand their customers or better approach problems. Um, Cause uh, like the, the entire space of applied machine learning is, um, is, is just amazing. We've only started touching on it. Like um, one of, uh, I'm not sure if you guys are, um, are familiar with distill.pub. Um, which is uh, which is a, a sort of a journal for machine learning, um, but it, it really goes into uh, into deep um, insights into how you would um, how you would explain machine learning to to someone who's who's not necessarily a computer scientist or has the AI background, um, and it was started by um, by someone named Chris Ola. Um, in addition to many other colleagues, um, but Chris, uh, Chris, I, I believe was hired by Google Brain um, just out of high school. Um, so uh, maybe went to college for for a little bit, but um, but certainly didn't have an undergrad degree, um, and is one of the the most delightful um, sort of machine learning authors that I have ever, uh, ever experienced in my entire career. Like he has this way of succinctly capturing these very complex ideas into really straightforward visualizations and terms. Um, but I, this was a very long-winded way of saying like machine learning is kind of magic and that, you know, just as math is ubiquitous, no matter where you go, no matter which field, um, statistics is ubiquitous. So is machine learning. It can be applied to anything. Um, and like, I, I truly think that, um, 
if you're interested in uh, if you're interested in solving interesting problems, um, it doesn't matter what your background is. Like there there are tools that can help you do that with machine learning. Now I'm actually curious because when I started digging into machine learning, it was very intimidating because everything is so math heavy. And I love math, don't get me wrong, it's great. <laughs> Linear algebra, absolutely my thing. Statistics, absolutely my thing. But it's a lot to just drink from a fire hose when you just get started. For yep. folks that are just breaking into the field, what would you recommend they do to kind of overcome this initial stage of, oh my gosh, this is too much? Yeah, so I, uh, I agree very, uh, I agree wholeheartedly that the math can look intimidating. Um, and one of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite anecdotes about this is, um, you know, like uh, mathematical notation uh, is kind of a, it's kind of a gatekeeper, I think. Like, it, and um, many of the most impactful mathematicians and physicists did not even adopt uh, mathematical notation as it exists today. They came up with their own uh, notation. Um, because, you know, the important thing isn't really like understanding how to manipulate these variable symbols. Um, it's just like understanding relationships between things. Uh, and and so um, so I think a lot of the time the math is needlessly heavy um, that people are like really too eager to put complicated looking equations on slides um, or in papers. Uh, and and I, I uh, disagree with that approach. Um, and so, so things that are, uh, that are helpful uh, to, to kind of combat, you know, uh, and to, to show that it's not really as complex of math as you would think um, is this distill.pub that I mentioned before. Um, and there's another book that is just delightful called Hands-On Machine Learning uh, with Scikit-Learn and TensorFlow. Um, and uh, this is from uh, from a man named Aurelian, um, who is phenomenal. He is currently living in New Zealand and like making all of us jealous. Uh, but this uh, this book, um, the latest version and the earlier version, are uh, very great at explaining machine learning and machine learning concepts in simplistic terms, um, and not going too heavy on the mathematical notation. Um, Cause really like, especially reinforcement learning, it's just uh, very simple ideas, right? Like you have an agent um, that acts on an environment. Um, so you have an environment that's created with a whole bunch of rules. Um, the agent acts on the environment. Uh, if something good happens, then the agent is rewarded. Um, so it does more of that. And if something bad happens, um, then the agent is kind of punished and like remembers, oh, I shouldn't touch that thing again. Um, and then uh, all of that is saved in a learning step. Um, so if you act and you learn over enough uh, over enough uh, iterations, then eventually you learn how to un uh, interact with an environment. Um, and and that's but all of that is very simple, right? Like that is. Uh, uh, there's nothing fancy about it. It's just, you know, the, the way to go about understanding. I, I think there's an interesting tangent to that is I was reading a book recently on uh, PyTorch and mm -hmm. I, I blank on the name, but I'll put it in the show notes, but it was one of those books that exactly like you described where it goes in depth about these concepts around deep learning. Here's how to apply it to cancer imagery and how to detect all, you know, the tumors in x-rays. And it just explains it so well without using yep. any mathematical notation. It's like these stick yep. figure drawings. And to me, this is like, wow, this is talent. When you can explain something so complex in terms that if I read this book, I have zero background and I just get it. Yep. It's, uh, I, I think it's an underappreciated talent for people teaching stuff the right way. Yep. And it also requires humility. Right. right. I, I think I think that there's um, uh, and and I don't really have data to to back this up. So I, so this is just kind of a personal opinion. But it often feels like in academia in particular, um, there's this um, devotion to very specific words that are uh, or very specific terminology, which is often a gatekeeper. Um, and and if anything, science is all about communication. 
And, and, you know, if, if you, it doesn't matter if you create the best tool in the world, if you can't explain to people why it's useful and why they should go about considering using it, um, or like what, uh, what a particular problem is and trying to inspire them to, and empower them and to make them feel like they can, um, do meaningful research and work in this space. Um, but anyhow, like it's the I, I think that the world could use a great deal more humility, especially from experts. So in that regard, and if we're talking about numbers, I have a question about metrics. And I know that yep. one of your principles that you've outlined on your website is bring data to opinion fights, which I yep. absolutely love. I think this is the mm -hmm. right approach. How do you get other people to care about metrics? Because, you know, it's easy to say that everyone should care about metrics. We can define whatever you want. How do you get everyone else to care? Awesome. That's uh, that's a great question. And it, it also, uh, I think it has to be kind of, um, you know, hammered in from, from like project launch, uh, especially for products. Um, and it's so easy uh, to get attached to the wrong metric, right? Like focusing on, um, you know, like revenue rather than customer retention um, or focusing on um, like pip install counts or GitHub stars instead of like, well, how are these people actually using it? Like are the, are the customer segments that we care about actually using our product or is it, you know, just, you know, random containers downloading a thing? Um, and, and I think... Uh, to, to get people to buy into metrics, they have to be stakeholders and they, they also have to have um, like the, it, it has to be a team discussion. Like it can't just be a PM showing up um, and saying like, well, I think we should do this. It has to be a, okay, well, let's think of what our actual objective is. Um, like what would we really enjoy to have happen? You know, how can we have the most impact? What do we want to have happen? All right. Let, now let's all talk about and discuss like how might we go about um, sort of testing uh, a hypothesis about you know this this thing that we want to have happen. And once that's done, you know how do we define the metrics to determine whether we're successful? And if you bring people along on that journey and you use it as kind of like a storytelling exercise, it's a it's a little bit easier to get people to buy into metrics. Um, but but usually. Um, I've found that the, the most impactful metrics are, are really these, um, you know, sort of combinations of insights that help you better understand customers as opposed to just picking like money or speed or whatever it happens to be. Yeah. On that note, I wanted to share a little bit of my story working with that because I'm, I spend a lot of time in the qualitative realm. Like I'm talking to users or like I'm, I'm going to be doing a lot of interviews. I'm going to be watching people use a product or um, just kind of getting like sentiment and like collecting anecdotes and like verbatims and, and things like that, that allow us to better understand the way like people's minds are working. It's not so much about like having a raw number, a raw number is great. And there's certainly times that we try to like balance out our qualitative with that. Um, but one thing that's really bothered me in the past, I work with some product managers and they're really quant based and they want to have like really hard numbers that go in the opposite direction of maybe what we've heard from a qualitative session. Um, and like your gut and my instinct, um, gets a little bit triggered, right? Like it's, yeah, of course the number says that, but I don't know that that's entirely the right thing that we're monitoring, like we need to be monitoring or measuring yep. or using as like a a benchmark to make a decision against. Um, it's like the, we're watching the wrong thing and yep. we're not optimizing for the thing that matters the most, which is the human brain or the way in which they want to use the product. Yeah, You're missing it. it like the number doesn't tell you stuff. <laughs> it doesn't show you everything. Exactly. And, and so, yeah, like how do you balance that? Have you experienced that yourself? Oh, absolutely. And and I love that you said this. Like the the marriage of qualitative and quantitative. Like you you can't you can't choose one and then uh, you know ignore the other. One of my favorite um, one of my favorite papers, and I will send this to to both of you. Um, it was authored uh, uh, by by a professor at University of Washington named Amy J. Coe. Um, and what she did was she uh, sat um, with 17 Microsoft engineers 
Um, so she was physically present in a room with them for 90 minute segments um, and was hand documenting uh, like whatever they were doing throughout their day. So um, like, you know, 10 minutes spent programming, five minutes spent doing bug triage, and then two minutes spent, uh, you know, reproducing, um, reproducing the issue, and then five minutes more on bug triage all throughout the day. Um, and they had these beautiful graphics displaying like what the fragmented nature of work looks like for software engineers for these 17 people. Um, and they had uh, additional data such as like years of experience and like specific kinds of teams that these folks were on. Um, but what was fascinating to me was that uh, they coupled this observation study with a survey um, where the users um, were asked, how do you seek information as you are, as you are going through tasks during your workday, as you're programming, as you're doing bug triage, et cetera? Like, what are the things that you, um, that you use as resources the most? And like, people would report back with like, oh yes, well, I look at the metadata for CLs that are, um, and I looked at, you know, the internal documentation and all the rest. Um, when the reality was, and this was, uh, you know, only um, only evidenced through observations, was that they would like yell across the hall to their colleagues, um, "Hey man, why did you name it this way?" Or like, "Where is that thing located again?" Or, uh, you know, "I don't understand this behavior. Please help me out." Um, and in the survey, they had, uh, all of the people uniformly had said, oh, you know, like sometimes I ask my colleagues questions, but really that's like the fifth thing that I do maybe. Um, and so, so I, I really um, think that if you rely fully on surveys or you rely fully on telemetry, um, you miss a lot of the insight that you can only capture through user experience work and through doing these, uh, these sort of um, observational studies for users and how they're actually uh, approaching your products. So. Well, as you know, even the way you ask a question or the way you observe someone can dictate the way in which the result that you receive back. So, yep. you know, that qualitative side is even an art in and of its own right, like trying to figure out how to write mm -hmm. questions properly and, you know, not leading people. And yeah, and people get that. Uh, what do they call that? There's like a, there's a term for it, but like they perform when they know they're being watched. Yep. Um, so yeah, great, great stuff to hear. Cool. It's interesting to also see how important it is to look at the right data because yeah. even things like surveys or qualitative uh, research can be flawed just like data can be flawed if you are not mm -hmm. following specific parameters for like Courtney called out, asking the right questions or asking yep. a, lot of, a lot of follow up questions because it's very easy to take the surface level insight and go to your team and say, well, customers said X is the mm -hmm. truth. So X must be the truth instead of asking, well, why or what mm -hmm. else is out there? Uh, yep. In that regard, I have a, again, kind of tangential question to what we just talked about, but how do you go about making sure that you're looking at the right things? Not just that you're actually looking at data, both qualitative and quantitative, but that it's actually the right data. Yep. That's an excellent question. And I think um, the, uh, this is also um, like one of the reasons why I love working so much in diverse teams um, and in teams with people who come from many dissimilar kinds of backgrounds. Um, because the, the best way that you're able to spot gaps in data sets and gaps in, in sort of information coverage that you have is by having um, people with, um, you know, varying experience ask questions um, and, uh, and sort of all address it at first instead of, um, you know, having a data scientist work in a corner um, attempting to understand if like this lens with which they're viewing the world is really the only um, the only lens that that truly exists. Like there was a survey that I was looking at the other day. Um, uh, you know, like there's the Stack Overflow developer survey, obviously, um, and then there there are many others that are that are sort of um, you know put out into the the developer community, um, and most of them are targeted in aggregate um, and don't really uh, you know, address a particular user segment. So like if I care about data scientists and machine learning engineers, like 
do I really care what a C-level exec thinks about a particular tool? Or do I really care what a JavaScript developer thinks about this, uh, this development environment? Um, like it's, uh, I, 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 you know, I, encouraging questions about data um, and then also uh, like making sure um, that all of your customers are represented, that if you are uh, sort of using data to segment your customers, um, that it's really every insight that you do have. Um, like, I, I don't have any easy, uh, I don't have any easy recommendations for it other than you really have to care about your customer and your people. Um, and, um, you know, it, it's it's always easier to probably just pull from the data that's available, but uh, to be right and to be useful, um, you have to, you have to, you know, put in the extra work to to get this multi-dimensional approach. Like I, I, there was a thread going around on Twitter earlier this week um, about hiring practices. Uh, and, I, and I like to think about this um, from that context as well. Like if you're um, if you're interviewing someone, you know you get you get uh, kind of a a one dimensional value for for that person um, at the end of each interview cycle, um, and there's really no way to reduce effectively a multi dimensional person um, with you know uh, work experience and. Um, mental abilities and skill sets and all of these things into just like this one very um, uh, flawed final metric. Um, so like I said, long-winded, it, it doesn't, uh, maybe that's not the, uh, maybe that's not the answer that you're aiming for. But the I, I, I do think that, um, the having the right data is is you know we're never going to be able to completely express a person or a situation with just numbers. Um, so so making sure that we we consider everything and also use statistics to help understand how confident we are in that assessment um, is in key, is important. So Din might dislike me for doing this, but I'm going to go off uh, the rails a little bit and. I want to know what your um, thoughts on the recent stock market craziness has been, and why 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 can't you tell me how to use AI to more effectively bid on the stock market? Man, if What's... if if I you know if if I was truly a machine learning engineer, I would have been purchasing GameStop stock, like you know, <laughs> back in the day. But the um. I, what about I, like what about crypto like Dogecoin like knowing okay what's going to take off what you know how can AI modeling be applied to that type of stuff I'm really curious or, or COVID right like how could any of the modeling none of the models that I have ever seen have predicted COVID um, or or anything similar happening uh, happening so quickly like it's it's just you know there there are some things um that uh that are that are just so strange and so wacky um that that it's very difficult for ai to even um to even guess and more importantly like traditional machine learning um is trained all on historic data right which means that you can't create new futures you can only predict what you've seen before um, and so, so I, I do think that, um, that that's one flaw that we all need to be mindful of is that, you know, there are other worlds that exist and other possibilities and many of them, um, you know, some of them worse, but many of them much better. Um, and, uh, machine learning can't give us that, um, at least not traditional methods, but, uh, but it's, it's just something, um, something to remember. So do they do like a fantasy prediction models, you know, like let's generate a, a past, let's train it on a past that didn't exist. Like if one or two things change, let's train, train our AI on that. Like, is that a super common way to like model, like help me understand that. Like how does AI model? Right. And just, you mentioned that kind of goes on past events, but mm -hmm. like, is there like kind of like, Oh, let's, let's cherry pick and change a couple of variables and just see kind of how it runs. So, so that's a great question, and it is a way to to test kind of the robustness of models. 
um, and also see where models could potentially have flaws. But um, but an example, um, one of my favorite examples um, of uh, sort of the way a traditional supervised model would make a decision is that you might have um, you know a massive uh, um, uh, a massive database from a bank with um, you know many different variables about a given person. So you know where that person happens to live, their academic background, their name, their age, their gender, maybe, um, and then uh, how much of a loan they were given and whether or not they defaulted on it. So whether or not they paid it back on time. Um, and if you're the manager of a bank, you care very much about whether they paid back their loan on time or not. Um, and you might uh, sort of be interested in using all of this historic information um, to say like, okay, well, if I meet a new person that has these criteria, um, what is the likelihood that they would pay me back my loan on time? Um, and so, uh, so you can um, you can analyze um, sort of that that back history. You can um, you can sort of uh, test your model or test it by uh, by adding in some maybe flawed examples, um, and uh, and and sort of understand um, you know if does this model hold up. If I move outside of Texas, does it hold up? If I, you know, start considering people outside of the United States, um, and then also, what is the impact uh, for specific demographics, right? Like, there's, um, you know, these these models were being used by banks for many many years, um, without realizing that zip code is very much tied to socioeconomic status and race. Um, and if you if you consider uh, if you you know sort of look back and and sort of uh, consider some of the the recommendations that the model was making, they were saying often that you know white men should be given loans, and then you know um, women or or people from other um, other races uh, would be less likely to pay them back on time. Um, which is, um, you know, completely uh, like it, that's a whole nother hour long conversation. But ethics and AI, um, again, I think that's one of the most important reasons why we need to have people from diverse perspectives, diverse backgrounds, um, all coming together to have these conversations about data and about accuracy and about whether or not we're measuring the right things is because, you know, if you if you only ask one kind of person, then you're only going to get one kind of answer. Um, and it's probably not going to be the right one. Uh, so biased data sets produce biased results. Exactly. And uh. it's very easy. And I love the point that you made about these hidden biases where it's not yep. necessarily where there's a flag that says what uh, ethnicity is a person is from, but just by zip code, right? Yep. Which somebody looks at the surface and says, I, I didn't even take this data in the account. Yep. It's just a zip code. But the zip code alone can say so much. Exactly. And it's it's also like every data collection method is biased. It's like uh, every single one. And um, it's just a matter of how pervasive that bias is through the data set. Like even um, there's a, a data collection, um, there's a data collection project within Google um, that uh, sort of encourages, uh, you know, like the the crowd sourcing of many different image types. Um, so, so an example of this would be um, if you think of marriage in the United States and like pictures of marriage, um, you're probably thinking of like white dresses and tall cakes or whatever. Um, and uh, and and that concept um, in photos looks very different if you're in China or if you're in India, right? Um, and so, so the motivation of this project was to encourage people from all over the world um, to take photos and then to tag them with specific terms so that they could be used for, for image recognition um, projects. Uh, but that is also biased in the sense that people have to have phones. And if you have a phone, um, like, a, like, a, you know, like a, an iPhone or whatever it is, um, you're probably coming from a very specific socioeconomic status, which means that many other people from other socioeconomic statuses 
won't have their um, won't have their experiences captured as part of this model. Um, so so biased data collection mechanisms. Like I, I am just so fascinated and impressed by the by the people who do work in this space um, because I, I would have never thought about it. Um, and then uh, and after you know reading a couple of papers, it it just makes you realize like how can I be sure of anything, uh, you know, going down the road. So it's interesting too because you called out the fact you know that there is the human interaction in AI, and I think this is another mm -hmm. point that is so often missed is that AI, it's not just throwing data at a problem and the machine will figure it out. It'll just come up with the right answer. There's humans involved. Yep. And humans are biased by default, like no matter yep. where you are. And if a human is involved in the problem, then you end up with, well, we, we see every once in a while these kind of occasional results. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And there's, uh, you know, it, it also working in this space and and thinking about ethics and AI um, quite a bit, really over the over the course of the last couple of years. Um, it, it makes you start to be more mindful about uh, human processes and systems and start questioning them a little bit more as well, um, because you know, just as algorithms uh, can make these really, really terrible assessments, um, you start thinking about like, well, what about judicial systems? Like, what about all of these things that when you were younger, you kind of just took for granted as being, you know, correct and obvious and like, obviously they're right. Um, and then you start thinking about like, well, no, wait, like there are all these, there are all these other cues in there. And what's worse is that um, these, these sort of human algorithms uh, for decision-making um, are often, you know, uh, even less understandable than than the machine learning models that are making their choices. Um, so, so I don't know. Like, if, if anything, um, machine learning has made me more confident that we need to have people constantly questioning um, things that we believe to be true um, or things that we believe to be right. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I feel a lot more appreciation for, for humanity after working with computers than, uh, than I would have ever expected, you know, growing up. Um, so like computers are magic, but the people parts are the hardest part. So one thing that you are involved in is contributing to open source projects and, um, for someone that wants to kind of follow in your footsteps, I know it can be intimidating sometimes to just get started contributing. Like you don't know what to do and you feel it's like, you know, you're the new person there and you don't really know what to, to pick out or work on or help with. Um, what would be your advice to kind of getting started, getting yourself out there when it comes to open source? If you want to provide your perspective and you want to get involved and add some diversity to a project. Yeah. So, so that's an, Excellent question. Um, open source is uh, open source can use every single type of skill set, um, not just programming. So if you're if you're a designer um, and you want to create a logo, if you're um, you know a tech writer and you want to create documentation, um, if you're uh, you know like a, a content person, or if you're really good at SEO or social media. Um, those skills are used uh, and, and very much needed um, throughout the open source community as well. So no matter who you are, um, your unique skill sets can be useful to an open source project. So don't feel like you have to be making programming contributions um, or, or any of those other things. And if anything, like I guarantee you the open source maintainers will just be delighted uh, to have somebody that isn't uh, that isn't necessarily asking about pull requests that can contribute in these ways that you know they probably um, don't have bandwidth or or the skills required to to help themselves. Um, so so um, certainly get involved however you feel most comfortable. Um, and then also if you're interested in programming contributions, Google Summer of Code uh, is a great way to get started and to get paid. Um, outreachy is also a way to have uh, an open source mentor um, if you're from an underrepresented group, um, sort of guide you through an open source project and making your first contributions. And then also GitHub has a tag called Good First Issue, 
um, which is uh, usually an indication that this is a, a relatively straightforward code contribution. And also the maintainers have the mental cue that, okay, this person is taking on this issue. That means they're probably a beginner. I can sort of mentor and guide them um, a little bit more than I normally would for pull requests. So it's like the shallow end of the pool. It's the kiddie pool, right? Exactly. Like, get your feet dipped in and get a little warmed up. Yep. And tech, uh, like documentation, tech writing. I have so much respect for technical writers. Like the, um, it is one of the most challenging skill sets to develop, I think, because um, you, it, like, and also UX research, to be honest. Like it's the, um, because you have to kind of understand the technical space, but you also have to have user empathy. You have to understand a little bit about psychology um, and for tech writing, a little bit about effective communication and how you would structure sentences and all of these things. Um, and every open source project that I have ever seen um, can use more uh, or uh, like corrected technical documentation. Um, like I think and, and every open source survey over the course of the last half decade, like the primary complaint from every user is like, man, technical documentation sure do wish that was better. Um, and Den has extensive experience in this space and can speak to it much better than I can. But technical documentation is a great way to get started with open source as well. Um, Everyone wants to talk about technical documentation, nobody wants to do it. So I, yep. I'm, I'm glad that there's somebody that's somebody like you that's advocating for it too. I'm all for technical doc. <laughs> awesome. So what would be, you know, as we kind of wrap up here, um, if somebody was to carry away a piece of career advice uh, from you, what would you say? Oh man, like I am not the right person to be asking for career advice. So, um, fun fact: when I was uh, when I was in the earth sciences, um, I got told that uh, I got told that being interested in Python and being interested in computer science um, were wastes of time. Like nobody would ever need those skills. Uh, nobody in earth science would ever care about or respect them. Um, and it was actively harmful for my career to uh, to to be interested in and in doing work in these spaces. Um, Hadley Wickham, who is uh, who is a chief scientist for our studio, he's the author of many um, tidyverse packages in the R stats community. Um, I believe he had a similar situation where um, in the academic world, like building developer tools is not respected as much as like publishing papers and results and getting citations from those more traditional means. And so people would tell him like, you know, it's great that you're building these, these R tools, um, but that's not going to be useful for your career and is actively harmful for it. Um, and, uh, and, and so my, my approach um, towards that feedback was effectively like, uh, uh, that's great that you have that opinion, but no, thank you. I'm going to continue doing the things that I enjoy um, and hope it works out in the end. Um, and so that is that is the approach that I've been following my entire career is I'm going to do what I enjoy and what I find to be useful and where I derive meaning. Um, and I'm going to hope it works out in the end. Uh, and and so far it has. And but um, but that is uh, you know maybe not the best advice to be giving to to the younger generation. But um, but if you if you do uh, really enjoy a space um, or a series of spaces, like go go after whatever your passion uh, whatever your passion happens to be, and you know there is there is a way to make it work. Um, and, uh, and, and also there is, uh, I think I said this before, there is magic in the margins, right? Like you don't have to follow this formulaic recipe of a career path, um, in order to be successful or, or to have, a you know, a meaningful, um, a meaningful work place or work, uh, work challenge. Like you can, you can do all sorts of things. Um, and, uh, like just be creative, um. I do have one last question. So yep. for people that want to follow you on Twitter, on any other channel, because I, I know Twitter because that's where I hang out and know that you hang out a lot and yes. everyone should follow Paige on Twitter, period. But where can people find you if they want to learn more about what you do and your adventures? 
Awesome. So I am dynamic web page pretty much everywhere on the internet, uh, Twitter, GitHub, etc. Um, and uh, like, please feel free to always ping me on Twitter or um, like, uh, you know, reach out via GitHub. I, my email address is also available there. Um, but I, I would be delighted to hear from folks. Um, and uh, thank you so much for having me today. This has been really, really fun uh, and, uh, and a great discussion, great conversation. It's always extremely nice talking to you, Paige. And uh, I uh, come you know, from a background where AI was not my thing that I originally even stepped foot on. So I feel like today was, again, a fire hose of just like learning and learning. And now I just want to go to archive and start browsing even for more papers. So thank you for the inspiration and thank you for your time. Awesome. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on and explaining things to me in a way that I could understand. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. Uh, thank you for asking questions. They were great ones. Thank you, Paige. Yep.